At this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the Epistle of the Romans, chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. Well, let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's Holy Word, beginning in chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word to us this evening. Amen. Well, seeking God's help and blessing this evening, let's focus our attention upon verse 13 as we continue our spin-off sermon series from our series in the book of Romans, uh, considering the word that Paul brings in verse 13, uh, where he addresses this promise that Abraham and his seed would be the heir of the world. He says, verse 13, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And we saw last time that this phraseology, heir of the world, is not speaking merely of physical real estate among the very, you know, the four corners of the earth and something like that. Uh, but this is speaking of the nations of the earth, the nations of the world being brought under the influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the righteousness of faith that God had promised that Abraham would be blessed and all nations blessed in his seed. We saw from Galatians chapter 3 that that seed of Abraham is the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head, Christ himself, Galatians 3.16. But also, at the tail end of Galatians 3, Paul makes the point that those who believe in Christ are also in Christ Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So this promise is to Abraham the father of the faithful, and to the faithful, the professing church of Jesus Christ, who professes this true gospel of righteousness by faith throughout the ages, particularly in the New Testament period, in which Abraham becomes the father of many nations, and his descendants uh, become more numerous than the stars in the heavens or the sand by the seashore, And we see an expansion of the new covenant people of God to all the nations. 
as Jesus sends out his disciples to disciple the nations, not 0.25% of the nations, but the nations, not just individuals. It's not just make disciples of people in the nations, but literally it's disciple the nations, individuals, families of the earth, nations of the earth, disciple them. And as they're discipled, Abraham becomes the father of many nations, and so shall his descendants be. We've seen that. We've seen the parallel in Romans 11, where just as Romans 4 speaks of the God who brought life from the dead in the birth of Isaac, even so as Abraham and his offspring inherit the world through the power of the gospel, it's described in Romans 11 as life from the dead for the nations of the world. Now, we're seeking uh, to take stock of what Paul is saying here, and we've already given an overview of the basic doctrinal substance of what he's saying, and that is that all nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to the return of Christ. All nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to the return of Christ. We saw that from a number of passages last Lord's Day evening, and we said that we're now going to dive in more deeply into the message of the Bible on this point, and in particular, as we saw in our Sabbath school this morning, when we want to understand the biblical theology of a particular teaching in the Word of God, when we want to understand the gradual development from Genesis to Revelation, well, naturally, we begin in Genesis. Genesis is literally where it all begins. In the beginning, God. He created the heavens and the earth, so on and so forth. We see in seed form the beginning of virtually every major theme of the Bible in the book of Genesis, and then it develops and grows and flourishes and bears fruit throughout the rest of the Bible coming to its consummation in the book of Revelation. So we're going to be looking at this notion of all nations joining together, professing the true religion prior to the return of Christ, and and we begin studying how this truth begins to unfold in the book of Genesis. Um, By the way, in terms of the doctrine that all nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to the return of Christ... You can see in your call to worship there in your bulletin uh, a summary of this in Isaiah 2, 2 through 5. One of many, and we'll, we'll come to see many, many, many passages that reinforce this teaching. It says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days, the new covenant period, that the mountain of the Lord's house, that's holy Mount Zion, the church, shall be established on the top of the mountains, the mountains are the nations, the kingdoms of the world, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, uh, it could even potentially be many peoples, uh, meaning people groups, shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion, that's the Great Commission, Jerusalem, which is Zion, to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth, that's the Great Commission. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. You see that as well, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And then it says that His scepter will go forth from Zion. It's the Great Commission. Uh, All nations are put under His feet. A willing people in the day of His power. At Pentecost, Peter preaches from Joel chapter 2, again, which emphasizes that in Zion and in Jerusalem, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is a, a major theme of the Old Testament, prophesying the period of the Great Commission between Our Lord's ascension and His second coming, the latter days. So out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
So there's Pentecost. Jesus says, teach them to observe whatsoever I commanded. So that's the law. That's the word of the Lord, Jesus Christ. He shall judge between the nations. So go disciple the nations now through his law and gospel and through his providential power and through his Holy Spirit of sovereign grace. He'll be judging between the nations. He'll rebuke many people. And as a result, the same people he rebukes shall beat their swords into plowshares. In other words, they'll respond to the rebuke by repenting and beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So that's just one example of this clear teaching of the Bible. All nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to the return of Christ. Now, Genesis. We see this theme beginning in the book of Genesis right from the outset when Adam and Eve fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3, and we find what's called the Proto-Evangelium. In other words, the first proclamation of the gospel, the first gospel promise, Genesis chapter 3. And interestingly enough, the first gospel promise comes in connection with God's curse on the devil and his kingdom. Now that makes sense because it's a zero-sum game. If you look at larger catechism 191, you'll see that as we pray, your kingdom come, that we're praying that the kingdom of sin and Satan would be pushed back and the kingdom of Christ would advance. It's a zero-sum game. So if the kingdom of Christ is advancing, that means the gates of hell are retreating and and vice versa. So much uh, can be gleaned from that in terms of looking at what's happening in our own country in our own day at the moment. But in any event, it's a zero-sum game. So the curse upon Satan and his kingdom is this gospel blessing proclaimed concerning Christ and his kingdom. And you can see that verses 14 and 15, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, tempting Adam and Eve into sin, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now that's symbolic of Satan's defeat and demise according to the judgment of God. The animal that he inhabited, the serpent, to tempt Adam and Eve is going to crawl on its belly and eat the dust and that's going to be symbolic of Satan's defeat and demise according to the judgment of God. Satan's going to eat the dust and Satan's kingdom is going to eat the dust. Understand this, verse 15 And I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. So it's not just Satan versus Eve. It's not even just Satan versus Christ, who is the seed of the woman. But it's the seed of the serpent, Satan and his seed. You and your seed, Satan. So you and the children of Satan, you and your your wicked offspring, the brood of vipers, the citizens of hell, those who are on their way to spend eternity in the place prepared for the devil and his angels. You and your kingdom, Satan, uh, I will put enmity between you and your kingdom and the woman between your seed and her seed. So there's a conflict not only between Satan and Christ, but between Satan and Satan's kingdom versus Christ and his kingdom. We have to understand the corporate historical nature of this conflict. It is not merely spiritual or individualistic. It is not merely purchasing the gift of salvation in terms of of, uh, heaven to come, but there is a corporate historical conflict between Satan and his kingdom, the world, and Christ and his kingdom, the church. That's the conflict that's taking place here. Uh, You see this throughout the book of Genesis, Cain versus Abel. Uh, The line of Cain versus the line of Seth. Lamech versus Enoch in the seventh generation of the conflict between their two uh, respective lineages. 
Lamech versus Enoch. The world of compromised, unholy sinners and apostates versus Noah and his household. Babel versus Noah and his descendants who were alive at that time. You see it all the way through the book of Genesis. It's a corporate historical conflict. The seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman. In other words, Satan and the world versus Christ and the church. And then we see that Satan would have his heel bruised and, his, and uh, sorry, Jesus would have his heel bruised and Satan would have his head crushed. As we've said many times before, Satan strikes the heel of Christ through the crucifixion and Christ brings down his heel on Satan's head, crushing his head through that same crucifixion to redeem God's people from sin. But it's not merely that. It's not merely Christ defeating Satan at the cross. Romans 16 verse 20 says that God would crush Satan very soon under the feet of the church at Rome. So it's Christ's body also defeating Satan. It's God's people in Christ crushing the head of the serpent in history, not merely at the cross. Uh, If you think of it this way, the cross is like David slaying Goliath. But there's an aftermath where the people of God chase down the Philistines. And I think Isaiah 11 perhaps even alludes to that. uh, Where God's people are raised up and uh, united and fly down against the Philistines. So there's an aftermath. There's the initial victory at the cross, but the corporate historical Victory of Christ's kingdom over Satan's kingdom. In other words, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Satan did not prevail against Christ. Christ prevailed against Satan. And for that reason, Christ's church will prevail against the gates of hell. And once again, Satan's kingdom is on the defensive in the new covenant age. He's pictured as hiding behind gates and the gospel goes forth and the church beats down those gates. And Satan is crushed underfoot, even by the believers at Rome and by the believing people of God across the board. Also, Satan, as I mentioned, is to eat the dust. Now this prophecy, and it is a prophecy, is picked up later in the scriptures. So you go to Psalm 72, Verse 9, when later biblical authors want to refer to Christ's historical victory over the kingdom of Satan through the gospel, they make reference to this aspect of that first gospel promise, that Satan would eat the dust. Psalm 72, verse 9, those who dwell in the wilderness, in fact, let's go back to verse 8, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, one greater than Solomon, whose kingdom rules over all, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. It goes on to speak of all the various kings, even all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. But notice, his enemies, not just Satan, but Satan's kingdom, the wickedness in high places, kings of the earth who plot against the Lord and his anointed, but Psalm 72 says it will come to naught. These enemies will lick the dust because they're representatives of Satan's defeated kingdom. You see it again in Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 25. We'll be doing, Lord willing, a whole sermon on uh, the book of Isaiah here. So we don't have time to get into the weeds, but uh, verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Dust shall be the serpent's food. So this language is used of Satan's defeat corporately, historically, 
the victory of the church over against the world in time in history. Now, some, some try to say, well, this is the new heaven and the new earth, and of course it is, really. Uh, Isaiah 65, verse 17, it uses that language. But if you follow the, the thrust of these verses, it's clear that this is the first fruits of the new heaven and the new earth. This is God's people as new creations. This is the first fruit of heaven. The things described in this portion of chapter 65 could not possibly be happening in heaven. Verse 20, no more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days, for the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. Okay, so there are sinners, there are children, there are old people, there are people dying. That's not going to be in heaven. You say, but we need, to, we need to take it figuratively. Okay, well then verse 25, the wolf and the lamb lying down. Let's take that figuratively too. See, you got to be consistent here. People try to put this in heaven. But the things that are described here could not possibly be in heaven. People building houses, verse 21, inhabiting them, planting vineyards and eating the fruit. Um, th- this is not the description we have anywhere else in the word of God concerning heaven in which there won't even be marriage or the domestic family unit or people of different ages and people caring for little ones. None of those things connect with heaven. Um, Verse 23, they shall not labor in vain nor bring forth children for trouble for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. We won't be having children in heaven. Um, More could be said, but uh, Notice the language of Satan's kingdom when it is defeated is eating the dust as the serpent's food. This is setting the stage for the victory of Christ and his spiritual offspring over Satan and his kingdom. So that's the first gospel promise. Secondly, Noah's imprecatory prophecy. Noah's imprecatory prophecy. And by imprecatory, we mean that once again, this promise of the expansion of God's kingdom comes in the form of a curse. Noah is pronouncing a prophetic curse against Canaan. This comes in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood. Noah sinfully gets drunk, lies uncovered in his tent. Uh, Ham, his son, sees him, and instead of covering the shame of his father, covering it in love, he goes and spreads it to his two brothers. They wisely walk backward, not gazing upon his father's nakedness or their father's nakedness, and they cover him, looking in the other direction. Uh, but Ham was seeking to spread his father's shame. And so when Noah comes to, and we trust repents of his sin, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't curse Ham. That's important because Ham is the uh, ancestor of many nations of the world, the Egyptians, the Ethiopians, and some people in their ethnocentric zeal in Western society have thought, well, God has cursed Ham, and that justifies, uh, you know, enslaving Africans and so on and so forth. Just a a ridiculous kind of interpretation. Noah doesn't uh, curse Ham. He curses a particular son of Ham and a particular people group that stems from Ham, and that is Canaan. He curses Ham by way of Canaan. And how is Canaan cursed? Well, we know that Canaan was occupied, the land of Canaan was occupied occupied by the Canaanites, and God was patient with them from the days of Abraham on for 400 years, but the cup of the Amorites and the Canaanites, eventually their cup of judgment came uh, to, to the fullest, And God brought the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt, through the wilderness, and under Joshua, they substantially conquered the people of Canaan and took possession of the land of Canaan. And so you see a fulfillment here of God's curse against Canaan when Joshua conquered it by the power of God. Now, this is a type and shadow of Yeshua, Jesus, Joshua, the greater Joshua, our conquering king, 
The land of whose inheritance, Psalm 2.8 says, is all the nations, not merely Canaan, but as a picture of Christ's conquest of His promised land of all nations, Joshua conquers the nation of Canaan who is cursed. But God has cursed all of His opponents. God has cursed all, as we heard in the psalm meditation, who will not bow the knee, who will not believe. And so Christ is the greater Joshua, is the greater conqueror of, again, the land of His inheritance, which is all nations. Now, we need to be careful. This curse upon Canaan has been fulfilled. It's not ongoing. We know that because in Matthew 15, 22 and following, excuse me, 22 and following, the Lord Jesus Christ interacts with a Syrophoenician woman who was a Canaanite, and it's clear that she not only was a believer, but had great faith. Uh, and so, Jesus says to her, great is your faith. So she was saved. It's, it's not as though God is not at work saving sinners from the descendants of the Canaanites, but they were conquered by Joshua as a, a picture of the greater Joshua discipling the nations. Now, moving along in this uh, prophecy, Genesis 9, 25 through 27, you see a blessing pronounced upon Shem, one of the two godly brothers of Noah, uh, one of the two godly brothers who were sons of Noah, who covered his shame, were told, blessed be Jehovah, the God of Shem. So the blessing of Shem is that Jehovah is his God. It, it's quite an amazing type of blessing. It's actually a blessing pronounced upon Jehovah himself. And then it's just the, the blessing for Shem is just implied that Jehovah is his God. Blessed be Jehovah, the God of Shem. And so God becomes his shield and his exceeding great reward, which is the greatest blessing you could have. God himself. God is the God of Shem. And it's from the Shemites or the Semites that we eventually find from the descendants of Eber, who was a descendant of Shem, we find the Hebrews of which Abraham is a descendant. He's a Semite. He's a Hebrew. And so it's from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down to Luke 3, verse 36, which says that Jesus Christ was descended from Shem and Eber and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and David and so on and so forth. So it's from the descendants of Shem that we have the people of God and that we have in the flesh the Son of God, the seed of the woman who crushes the serpent's head. How is it that Christ's kingdom is going to crush Satan's kingdom? It's because God himself, Emmanuel, has come and is their head and king. Then we have a statement concerning Japheth. Verse 27, May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Now, it's not saying this may happen. It's just a way of pronouncing that this will happen. Japheth will be enlarged. Canaan will be his servant, and he'll dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, who is Japheth? Well, if you go to the table of nations in chapter 10, which comes right after this, you see Japheth is mentioned first. Verse 2, the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarma. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. Who are the Japhethites? Well, most scholars are in agreement for the most part that the Japhethites are those who now occupy what we call Europe or the Western world. Gomer most likely refers to a people group that dwelt in modern-day southern Russia. Magog, which is constantly represented throughout biblical prophecy as representative of the Gentile nations, the, the most powerful Gentile nations that oppose Christ and, and so on and so forth, especially at the very end in Revelation. This most likely refers to the Scythians, 
Um, and again, these are peoples that dwelt in Eastern Europe, uh, the northern portion of Asia Minor, north of Turkey. They, of course, migrated west, but uh, these are the, the European peoples. Madai is a little bit easier. That's the Medes, the Medes. Remember, the Medes and the Persians uh, were one of the great empires of the world in the days of Daniel. Javan is universally accepted to be the Greeks. Javan is the father of the Greek empire, the Greek peoples that spread the Greek language all throughout the Western world and throughout the East as well, even in the days of the New Testament, which is why the New Testament was written in Greek. Tubal, Meshach, uh, I, I put them together because in Scripture they're most often put together. And uh, scholars and commentators believe, again, this is a people group that dwelt in uh, Eastern Europe, most likely in modern day, the modern day nation of Georgia, the capital of which is Tbilisi, which you could hear per, scholars think per, perhaps Tubal and Tbilisi have a connection. Uh, it's Eastern Europe, it's Northern Asia Minor. Uh, Tyrus or Tyrus is uh, believed to be Thracia, which is modern day Bulgaria, Romania. Tarshish is pretty much agreed upon to be Spain, and Katim is Cyprus. So you can trace the Japhethites to the Western world and to the modern day region of Europe, uh, which really makes sense when you look at this prophecy many thousands of years ago where you have the enlargement of Japheth, and that enlargement has been seen more so than the people of Shem or the people of Ham. The Japhethites have been enlarged by way of migration. They've spread across the world from Eastern Europe to Western Europe. They've spread, obviously, historically in North America. Uh, There's been a great enlargement of the influence of the Western world through the discovery of uh, the, the continents in the Western Hemisphere and so on and so forth. So through migration, also through conquest. Uh, when Daniel chapter 2 represents the kingdoms of the world that would lead up to the coming of Christ, first you have the golden head of Babylon, then you have the two arms of Mede, uh, the Medes and the Persians, and then you have uh, the midsection, which is the Greek empire of Alexander the Great, and then you have the feet, uh, which is the Roman empire in, in which time and place the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and established his New Testament kingdom. And you, you have the, the feet, which are mixed with iron and clay, and you have the ten toes, the toes of the Roman empire. There's ten of them, just like there are ten horns on the red dragon in the book of Revelation and on the beast, We'll spend some more time on that, but these things are all connected. Uh, the ten kingdoms within the Roman Empire were recognized universally prior to even the authorship of the New Testament. It, it, even unbelieving scholars acknowledge that uh, in the first century there were ten major sections, ten major kingdoms of the Roman Empire that when Rome eventually fell, the authority went from the Roman Empire on the seven hill city of Rome to the ten kingdoms of Rome, which is basically Europe, which is basically the Japhethites. Um, and, and just resisting temptation to go any further into that. But you have a great enlargement through world conquest and migration among the Japhethites. Also, Canaan shall be his servant, indicating that these Western empires particularly Rome, would conquer the land of Canaan and would conquer the world itself, but would would in particular have authority over Palestine and over the peoples of the east. Canaan shall be his servant. And he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. This is not merely speaking of conquest, but this is speaking of the expansion of the gospel to the nations of the world. In the New Testament, the Jews reject the gospel. The gospel goes forth to the nations, to the Gentiles. And if you follow Paul's missionary journeys, and as you follow the growth of the New Testament church throughout church history, you see that it's largely in keeping with this prophecy. 
that the Gentiles that are uh, engrafted into the covenant community, into the tents and tabernacles of God's people, are primarily uh, the descendants of Japheth. It's the Western world that has largely been Christianized and remained under the influence of Christianity throughout the centuries up to this point. And it's through missionaries from the West that the gospel has been brought to the descendants of Ham and the descendants uh, we, we trust as well. The gospel, as Paul says, going to the, to the Israelites, the descendants of Shem as well. But it's the Japhethites that largely throughout history have been dwelling in the tents of Shem. Uh, the ten kingdoms, the ten toes, the, the ten horns, however you want to look at it, but, but the European nations who descend from Japheth. So that's the basic scope of church history up to this point. We're not saying that everything in this prophecy has already been fulfilled. We trust that the fullness of the nations of the Gentiles will come to dwell in the tents of Shem. But at the very least, it's obvious that this prophecy is being fulfilled even in our day. Now, thirdly, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. And from Genesis to Revelation... The conflict between Christ and his church versus Satan and his kingdom is consistently presented before us as the battle between God's people and Babylon. Babylon is representative of Satan and his kingdom time and time again from the Tower of Babel up through Isaiah chapter 14 verses 13 and 14 where we have that statement that we of course I think rightly apply in an ultimate sense, to Satan, but which the context of Isaiah chapter 14 most immediately applies to the king of Babylon. You can see Satan's influence upon the kingdom of Babylon. Uh, Isaiah 14, 13, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. So that's Satan, but that's Satan as he manifests himself in the kingdom of Babylon. Much as we said the red dragon in Revelation is not just any old red dragon, he's got ten horns, okay? He's working through a particular empire, Uh, Seven heads, seven hills, ten horns, ten kingdoms. Um, Satan and his kingdom are very much in tandem throughout the scriptures. And it's frequently Babylon that's used, that's highlighted in that connection. So the seed of the woman, Christ, versus the seed of the serpent, Babylon. You see it in Daniel chapter 2, the head of that humanistic statue of the kingdoms that will be defeated and destroyed by Christ, the stone uh, from out of the mountain cut without hands who attacks and destroys that statue and uh, dashes it to pieces. Daniel 2, the head, is Babylon. And of course, Revelation 17 through 19, Satan's kingdom as it's being defeated in those chapters is presented as the harlot, the whore of Babylon. Babylon, this imagery is, is, it seems, everywhere throughout the scriptures. And so Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, really kicks things off in terms of this theme. We're told, verse 1, now the whole earth had one language and one speech, and it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, that's Babylon, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Some kind of a a skyscraper or maybe a ziggurat, a a worship center that would be very tall uh, up into the, the clouds as it were as we see many of the ancient peoples uh, building these kinds of things. Uh, Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So God said, fill the whole earth. 
uh, in the dominion mandate, God made man in his own image, that man would honor and glorify God, that man would honor and glorify God's name, that he would take dominion over the earth and spread out throughout the whole earth and fill the earth with offspring. But rather than that decentralized dominion approach that God ordained, the people at the Tower of Babel have a centralized, globalistic agenda to set up this one-world center of worship and authority, and they build this tower not to reflect the glory of God, but to promote their own name, their own glory, their own reputation. They build a city, they build a tower, uh, lest we be scattered abroad. In other words, it's open opposition to God's dominion mandate from Genesis chapter 1 open opposition to God. It's humanism. We'll use human technology to build a monument to human power and pride, and we will unite humanity here rather than spreading out throughout all the the land that God has given throughout the earth. And notice they use language that reminds us of Genesis 1 when God says, let us make man. They're saying, come Let us make bricks. Let us bake them thoroughly. Let us build ourselves a city. Let us celebrate our name, our glory, what we have created and what we have done. It's self-deification. It's the theme of Babel or Babylon throughout the entire Bible. Um, And we see it even today reflected in our own society with its self-confidence in human science, technology, and so on and so forth. And God then responds where he says, verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed the people are one and they all have one language and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them the same kind of ironic sarcasm that God uses of Adam and Eve. Well, we'd better kick them out of the garden lest they eat of the tree and live forever. It's sarcastic. God's not actually afraid that they're going to do that, okay? And you can see the sarcasm, verse 7, come let us go down. You want to pick a fight with us? Let us make man, and now you're saying let us bake... uh, Uh, bricks and let us build a city and let us exalt our name, God says, you want to mess with us? Come let us go down there and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. God is mocking them, laughing them to scorn, a la Psalm 2. He scatters them, he confuses them, and it's interesting, we see something of a reversal when God scatters them and confuses their speech and sends them off in different directions, uh, we see something, a, a reversal of this at Pentecost, where not only is the gospel proclaimed in a way that's not confusing, but to everyone in his own mother tongue, the gospel's proclaimed by that beautiful gift of tongues at the day of Pentecost, where the wonderful works of God are proclaimed to people all in their own language from every nation under heaven. They're now brought together and united in the one true gospel of the one Savior. And then united, many of them, converted and joining the one church of Jesus Christ. And notice, unlike Babel, where they say, let us do this and let us do that, and they've got their own agenda at Pentecost, when they're converted, they say, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Isaiah chapter 2, again, our call to worship, sets before us the sovereign grace of God as it converts the nations. Instead of saying, come let us do this and, and pursue our own agenda, it's what shall we do? We'll do what God says. Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. He'll teach us His ways. He'll show us His paths. Come let us do what God has said we should do. And they respond in repentance and faith. So we see it in the Tower of Babel. Also, finally, God's promises to Abraham, which is what Paul's alluding to in Romans chapter 4. You have the global blessing. 
When God comes to Abraham, Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's not a promise for modern-day Israel, the Israeli state, okay? That's Abraham as the father of the faithful, Abraham whose seed is Christ, and all who are in Christ through belief of the righteousness of faith, It's God's kingdom. It's God's church. Those who bless it will be blessed. Those who curse it will be cursed. And in you, Abraham, that is in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see this then repeated in chapter 22, verse 18. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so it's families. It's nations. Notice how the Bible expands the extent of this blessing. Chapter 28, verse 14, God just keeps repeating this to the patriarchs. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Skipping back 26, verse 4, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And in Galatians 3, 8, and 9, Paul says that when God said all the nations would be blessed in the seed of Abraham, that he actually preached the gospel to Abraham. So this is not just some extraneous peripheral doctrine the corporate historical victory of the church over the kingdom of Satan is part of the gospel. Now, we've got to be careful with this. We're not saying, oh, somebody has a different eschatology, they're not saved. But just saying it flows out of the gospel. Paul quotes this particular promise and calls it the gospel. And certainly it's good news. We also find that, uh, as I already just read, that Abraham's descendants would be an innumerable seed as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. You see that in Genesis 13, 16, Genesis 15, 5. In the book of Revelation, this imagery is brought out. A multitude that no man can number from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So this innumerable seed is pointing to the church of Jesus Christ as a result of the Great Commission which disciples the nations only a fraction of which we've seen so far in church history. There's more to come, we trust. Uh, But it is kind of interesting at the end, Revelation chapter 20, notice how it describes the nations that Satan at the very end, after a sizable period, spoken of as a thousand years, a sizable period in which Satan is prevented from deceiving the nations. Now we can debate Are we currently in that thousand years? Is that the bulk of the New Testament period and we've been in it since the ascension of Christ? Or is that a future period of great gospel advance? Uh, These things can be debated, but you don't have to hold to one view or another. You can hold either view and still hold to the optimism of the point we're making here. Uh, Because Revelation 20 is telling us that during that sizable period in which Satan is prevented from deceiving the nations, the thousand years, we can speak of that probably figuratively, uh, that by the end, at least by the end of that period, or during that period, or through the progress of that period, or for some people through the entire period, Satan's prevented from deceiving the nations, and therefore that's the period of time in which we see all nations joining together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to Christ's return. Now notice at the end of that thousand years, the thousand years can't be the whole New Testament period because there's a time after the thousand years before Jesus returns. Look at verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. People that say that the millennium is the whole New Testament period cannot possibly sustain that. Okay, because even if you think it's the bulk of the New Testament period, there's a period after the millennium. There's a period after the thousand years. And during that period, 
after the thousand years of Satan being cooped up and prevented from deceiving the nations, after that period, Satan is released from his prison. Now, that tells us something, by the way. People that say Jesus could return in five minutes. Um, Really, if we're in either the period before the millennium or we're in the period described as the millennium, then we haven't gotten to the period after the millennium. And since I would assume most of us, if not all of us, would agree that we're either in the millennium or that the millennium is yet to come, then we can't be in the period after the millennium, in which case none of the events in verses 7 and 8 have happened yet, nor do we assume that they could happen in five minutes, right? So after the thousand years, there's a period where Satan is released from his prison. He goes out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now, Jesus can't return until that happens. And we've seen it even in our own nation, uh, the deceptive power of Satan takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. You know, it, it, it might take a century. Maybe it takes a generation, 30 or 40 years. But I don't think it's going to take five minutes. And I don't think it's going to take, um, well, let's just leave it at that, five minutes. Because people claim Jesus could return right now. But you see, Jesus can't return before all the prophecies that he set forth in his word have come to pass. And so it's really an unsustainable position to say Jesus could return at any time. Unless you're saying Satan is no longer bound, he's released and deceiving the nations, and the millennium has passed, whatever that means, and we're now in the end of the end of the end of the end times, and he's gathering the the nations from the four corners, okay? But what I want to point out here is that the nations whom he gathers after the millennium, after this sizable period of global discipleship, the nations he then is released to once again deceive, to re-deceive, right? He deceived them. Then they were undeceived for a long period of time. Now he's going back out to deceive them again. And notice the way John describes these nations whom Satan is now regathering against Christ to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Now, I know some instances in the book of Judges, God's enemies are called as numerous as the sand of the sea. But, but the predominant use of this phrase is not random assessment of how many troops the, the Midianites have. The predominant use of this phrase in the scripture is a description of the covenant people of God. And so again, this reinforces the fact that all nations will have been undeceived, they will come to a corporate profession, they will enter into the church and profess the true religion, and then Satan at the end will be released to regather the children of Abraham. Those who are as numerous as the sand of the sea, the professing people of God. Again, it's, it's a nominalistic church by that point. It's a house of cards. Satan's let loose to reveal that at the very end of that period. But notice the Abrahamic language of the nations that are rallied against Christ at the end. They are those who had been brought to profess the true religion, if in fact we're understanding that phrase correctly, that they're as the sand of the sea. Uh, They've been part of the true church and profess the faith of Abraham, and now they're falling away as nations. Uh, In the book of Genesis, God speaks of Abraham as the father of many nations. Abraham literally means the father of many nations. He says, Abraham, from you will come kings and queens. And Romans 4 would tell us that that's not merely genealogical among the Israelites, but that's actually saying, so shall your offspring be through the power of the gospel. Kings and queens, rulers of many lands. God promised Abraham the land of his inheritance, Genesis 17, 8, which is Canaan. But as we've said, that land of his inheritance is expanded. Psalm 2, 8, God says to his son, ask of me and I'll give you the nations, all nations as your inheritance. The seed of Abraham, Christ, inherits all the nations. 
His dominion is from the sea to the ends of the earth. Psalm 72 verse 8. Psalm 82 verse 8. God, you shall inherit all nations. So the land promise, though it's not merely geographic real estate, the land promise in terms of the people inhabiting the land being converted and the land being, as, the, uh, as God speaks to the Ephesians, the Ephesian children in Ephesians 6, he applies the promise, honor father and mother and you'll live long in the earth. So God says to believers inhabiting the land of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, your real estate in Ephesus becomes the equivalent of God's promised land in the sense that I'm going to apply, Paul says, the fifth commandment, which has a promise attached to it, and that promise concerning the promised land will be applied to wherever God's people inhabit. So the land promise expands as the church expands to every nation under heaven. All power and authority has been given to Christ, therefore go disciple the nations. And of course, it it ultimately points to heaven. Uh, But for now, that's not our emphasis. Uh, Finally, in Genesis, God promises to Abraham that he will possess the gates of his enemies. Very briefly. After Abraham obediently offers up Isaac, and then God provides a substitute, God says to Abraham, Genesis 22, 16, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiply, uh, multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. That promise is restated in Genesis 24, verse 60. We saw last time that it's applied in Psalm 47 as the peoples of the nations, even the princes of the nations, gather before the God of Abraham, the father of many nations. And we're told, verse 9 of Psalm 47, the shields of the earth belong to God. So Christ, the seed of Abraham, owns the shields of the earth. He's sovereign even over the gates of hell. They can't prevail. The defensive uh, mechanisms that Satan has in place to keep the gospel out will ultimately fail. Once again, Genesis is just giving us the seeds. It's just giving us uh, the, the beginning of the unfolding of this teaching that all nations will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to the return of Christ. Now, just briefly, by way of application, uh, we need to adapt our thinking, our worldview, our perspective on the world needs to be in light of these truths that we glean from the book of Genesis. There's a temptation for us in our own day, for some of us, to compartmentalize life, to view things that are happening in the church as inherently spiritual, as uh, relating to Christ and His redemption, and then to view things that are happening in society, uh, the, the, the global developments in geopolitics and things that are happening in, in Lansing, in the state of Michigan, or in Washington, D.C., with the, the various legislative bodies and the president and the Supreme Court, we see these things happening among the nations and we're tempted to compartmentalize these things as, well, that's political and this stuff over here is spiritual. And the church is really the only thing we should think about when we think of Christ's kingdom advancing. But this is telling us that the advance of the kingdom of Christ and of the church will have a leavening effect will disciple and and bring a major influence to the nations of the world. Not merely individuals, not merely families, but nations and kings will be brought to submit to Christ. So we can't just compartmentalize. Also, we could be tempted to go to the other extreme and politicize everything and get distracted from the power of the gospel and focus all our attention upon Um, what's happening in the upcoming elections and 
the legislature, what's happening in the state of Michigan. We should be aware of it, of course. We should be praying and laboring against it. But we could be tempted to just forget about the gospel, forget about the righteousness of faith that Paul says is the engine of this advancing victorious kingdom of Christ. We can, we, we can be tempted to forget about that and put all, all of our eggs in the basket of various political movements and political leaders and political campaigns. Beware of that. The solution really is simply that we continue to, to be uh, with our hands at the plow, continue to sow the seed of the gospel, continue to labor as individuals, families, congregations, and as citizens, to continue to, to seek to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to adorn it through our lifestyle, to continue all the things that we're doing and find encouragement. That's the point of these promises to encourage us that it's not in vain that we are ultimately victorious that we are presently though it may not seem like it we feel that we we can feel the bruising of the heel we can feel like the heel we're getting bruised we're getting uh, uh, teeth that are sinking into our heel but to understand that all of these things that we're going through it's all part of the corporate historical victory of Christ crushing the head of Satan and of his kingdom and the Lord Jesus Christ will ultimately bring it to pass let's pray gracious heavenly father we pray that you would instruct us by your word that you would equip us for every good work, and that you would encourage our hands as we are about the work of your kingdom. Encourage us. May we not uh, grow discouraged and downcast at what we see in the world, but may we recognize that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns on high, that he is moving his chess pieces according to perfect wisdom, and that the kingdom of Satan has not a chance in the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.